Good evening, Dr. Dan Guerra here, Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Today is the 11th day of the first month of the 22nd year of the century known as 2000. We've been talking about avirulence, and today's lecture, I want to make sure that we give enough concrete exposition of what avirulence can mean in pathogen-host interactions. Uh, you'll see why I want to make sure that it's concrete, because I don't want that concreteness to be misplaced. I in other words, I don't want to generate a novel event in your vocabulary and have you go away with not understanding its potential position in mammalian host pathogen interactions, because primarily the avirulent story is still confined to plant pathology. Although you find it in the mammalian literature uh, in a very uh, specific way. And I will uh, illuminate what I mean by that uh, directly. So let's, do, let's go back and remind ourselves about a particular gene we were discussing. That was the CIARH locus. And we remember we were talking about this in terms of streptococci. Some streptococci that are pathogenic in humans and some that are not. And we're talking about the oral cavity in humans and the potentiation of caries, or that is, uh, of course, dental degradation, right? In the form of a cavity, it's usually called. I told you that this gene CIA, and there are two different components, the R and the HH, of course, histine kinase, and the R is the receptor of a transphosphorylation after autophosphorylation of a histidine residue on the kinase. Remember all that. Of course, I told you about competence. I said it's a transient physiological state, and it has to do with the uptake of exogenous DNA. And of course, if you think about it, the ability of a bacteria to take up exogenous DNA is one of the reasons we don't really talk about bacterial species because the species is supposed to have a defined genome. And if you can pick up DNA that is not otherwise in the genome, then how do you describe species? You see, now, there's all kinds of ways for bacteria to pick up DNA. They can pick it up by a plasmid, these are usually closed covalent circular DNA that can be taken up by bacteria via various means. Um, but also there are bacteriophage that carry uh, uh, a DNA. And besides that, there are components of conjugation with other bacteria that can cause a mixing of chromosomal DNA. So that's again why there, you don't hear a lot about bacterial species anymore, although it's it's fine to talk about genus species of bacteria. The host, you're going to describe the specific ones. For example, like gas pneumoniae versus um, oh, S. suis, for example. So it's streptococci, natural competence as the uptake of DNA exogenous for genetic transformation purposes is stimulated by this thing called the competence stimulating peptide, uh, or it's also known as SIGX inducing peptide. And it's initiated by the COM, COM locus. Remember, that's the product of the COM C gene. And it's 
aborted by the COM AB transporter, it's not a protein. After that, the extracellular CSP is sensed by the COM DE by the TCS, right? So in S pneumoniae, yes, the CIA RH negatively regulates competence development. So if it negatively regulates competence development, that means it doesn't allow for competence to occur in the streptococcus. You could call the CIARH an avirulence gene because you can enhance virulence by picking up foreign DNA. Okay? So that's the take-home message I wanted to uh, finish with last time and next time. So what about virulence factors since the strict do? In, they tend to promote colonization. Okay? That means the ability to use motility or any other means necessary to contact host cells and then to infect and disseminate within the host. Secondarily, a virulence factor can, have, can associate with the ability to adhere to a host cell and resist any kind of physical chemical removal. Another virulence factor that promotes colonization is the ability to invade into the interior of the host cell. And finally, well-known virulence factors, well-described in bacterial genetics, is the ability to compete for uh, essential nutrients, particular ones of specific oxidation state, like iron and copper, and those kinds of metallic nutrients. Now, I want to move to a different description here about avirulence. This paper published a while back, and I will give you all these references in the show notes, but it tells you that a recombinant modified vaccinia virus known as Ankara, and that's known as MVA, modified vaccinia virus Ankara, right, uh, might be a promising, or at least it has been a promising and somewhat novel viral vector for the expression of multiple structural foreign genes of interest. And that's because it has some interesting biological properties. In particular, it has a really good safety profile for working in mammalian systems. <clears throat> and it has an availability of a versatile vector technology range. So frequently MVA, that is the vaccinia virus, is a choice for preclinical and even clinical studies in mammals. Now, owing to its avirulence and deficiency to produce and replicate after in vivo inoculation, MVA is used under a biosafety level one condition in the laboratory. So there you go with avirulence. There you have a virus which can be used for transfection, that is bringing in DNA into a host eukaryotic mammalian cell, but the virus itself is a virulent, okay? So there's a, there's a key feature. In fact, they've, they've used this for um, influenza vaccines, particularly the H5N1 vaccine lineage of um, vaccines. Now, here's another story about a virulence. When you think about non-human primates, it's called NHPs, um, they can harbor species-specific 
viruses known as SIV. Those are simian immunodeficiency viruses. They've been studied because of the HIV story in humans. And you find uh, the non-human primates that uh, have been studied quite a bit with SIVs have been non-domestic felids and even African hyenas. And what these um, SIVs demonstrate is seroreactivity against the feline, remember they were using felids, immunodeficiency virus or FIV antigen. So you get seroreactivity, right, of FIV antigen. So it's been difficult to study the biological implications of non-fatal infections in natural populations of these non-primates. And epidemiological and clinical studies have been performed, but thus far, it's difficult to detect an increased morbidity or impaired fecundity or even survival of naturally infected SIV or FIV seropositive versus seronegative animals. So what that means is you don't get disease symptomology when you get seropositive, which means seroconversion, which means antibodies to the virus. You get no symptomology, particularly the kind that can be studied, as I said, increased morbidity, impaired fecundity, and overall survival. Okay? So there's another key component there about what is considered virulent versus non-virulent. In fact, when you look at lentiviruses in general, scientific inquiry is often looking for what is the basis for virulence versus a virulence. Okay? Because it, obviously, if you cause antibody production, you're very likely not going to get any symptomology. So you've induced an avirulent infection. Right? at least transmission. So where you have the virus entering, it induces an immune response all the way at the level of plasma cells generating antibodies, IgG, that are serospecific to that virus. And therefore, eliminating the virus from becoming a, a robust, infectious, pathogenic agent. Right? And all of that that I just described, when it doesn't happen, that's avirulence. You see how this can be broadly defined, right? That's what I'm telling you about the nuances of definition. Now, one more discussion about this, these, these definitions of virulence versus avirulence. Paper published uh, not very long ago in PLOS path, uh, Pathology, uh, PLOS Pathogens, excuse me, 2019 paper, don't worry, it'll be in the show notes, tells me about fungal pathogenesis being dependent on very specific secretion and then localization of virulence factors, which all are going to do what? Obviously, virulence factors, they're going to drive host colonization, fungus to the host. And here's an interesting biochemical um, kernel. Protein glycosylation of course, which is a very common post-translational modification of many proteins you find in 
either the cell wall of the fungus or the plasma membrane of the host. Anyway, protein glycosylation, common post-translational modification uh, in the fungus <coughs> for cell wall components as secreted proteins and factors is typically required ultimately for the appropriate protein localization, secretion, and function during infection. Therefore, the absence of glycosylation is associated with animal pathogen avirulence. So this goes back to what I was telling you a couple of uh, lectures ago, the very first one about the endoplasmic reticulum and the unfolded protein response, the UPR, and that being associated with virulence versus avirulence. Now, why was that? Because if you do not have a cognate protein glycosylation pathway, which is canonically in the endoplasmic reticulum, that's where you get those UDP glycosyl residues being added covalently to proteins, during glycoprotein synthesis using the ribosomes of the endoplasmic reticulum. And then ultimately the movement of those glycoproteins from the ER to the Golgi, to the plasma membrane and ultimately secretion, for example, for IgGs, antibodies, right? Or for proteins that, could, uh, that reside in the membrane, those, those very often also are glycosylated. Here I'm telling you right now that for fungi to be pathogenic in mammals, they require a functional glycosylation pathway because when you have any corruption or mutation in glycosylation, you lose pathogen virulence. Therefore, they become avirulent. So another avirulence factor can be the potential pathogen's inability to maintain and functionally active glycosylation pathway in the host, in the host, right? Or even in the fungus, because the fungus requires the secretion of glycoproteins. So if it fails to secrete glycoproteins, it can't carry out an infection. So anything that impairs that glycosylation pathway, which is very complex and florid, actually, and I've talked about it in the regular lectures in biochemistry. We can go back and discuss it sometime if you like. Um, that particular pathway, just a, a straightforward UDP glycosyl conjugated covalent modification of nation polypeptides in the endoplasmic reticulum, that process itself in the fungus, when it's functional, is a virulence factory. And when it's non-functional, it's an avirulent component. Okay. There's again, I'm, I'm giving you this, uh, this full nuance of understanding what I mean by virulence. Now, we talked about the biofilm connection. Now we're back to Streptococcus. We talked about dental caries and the fact that certain sugars, particularly sucrose, can induce karyogenesis. We talked about S-mutans, Streptococcus mutans. That's a very potent karyogenic bacteria in the human oral cavity. We talked about the gene called the CIARH operon, which you see also in S. pneumoniae, right? 
And remember, we talked about that. I just mentioned 10 minutes ago. Remember, it's the whole histidine kinase response factor thing. Then I told you it was a third component that you see. That's the, the CIAX. And the CIAX contain, contains a calcium binding domain. And that whole CIAXRH operon, the bacterial operon, its expression is repressed by calcium through the binding of one of the products, the CIAX. And then the inactivation of CIAH, CIAR, and or CIAX will result, when that all goes down, in an attenuated biofilm formation. So that means the CIRH system and its cognate signal play a key role in biofilm development and in other oral streptococci such as in sanguinis. So what I'm saying is that the CIRH pathway is basically an avirulence pathway, right? Because it corrupts the biofilm layering that ultimately can lead to a karyogenic state if there's sufficient desmutans in the biofilm, okay? So let's go into some great detail here. So strep gordoniae, we, mentioned, we, we introduced it last time, is actually a commensal inhabitant of the human oral cavity. And when I say commensal, it means, of course, it's non-pathogenic. Therefore, in our discussion, it's non-karyogenic. And in fact, when it's there, it helps neutralize the pH, bring the pH back up from the acidification caused by mutans. And so in that way, it mitigates damage of the S-mutans, which is going to be the karyogenic bacteria, right? But not only that, it inhibits the growth of the pathogenic bacteria themselves by secreting bacteriosins. I'm going to tell you what those are in a minute and what they do. But also, it sends out H2O2, hydrogen peroxide. Finally, ascordonii is an occupant of the biofilm three-dimensional space that would otherwise be available for the karyogenic bacteria, such as strep mutans. So what Gordonii is, is known as a pioneer colonizer. So it binds to salivary proteins, which is directly bound on the surface of the tooth in the human oral cavity. Okay. That then forms the base structure of the oral biofilm. So the ability to adhere and to form biofilms in the host is, is absolutely essential for the persistence in the oral cavity. Otherwise, ascordonii would simply be brushed or mouthwashed away every time it tried to carry out uh, a transmission into the oral cavity. Now, I also want you to know that biofilms can increase fitness by facilitating natural genetic transformation via passaging of, uh, of uh, vectors, for example, plasmids, that whole DNA uptake competence I just talked about. And it does it by providing a protective niche in the continually fluctuating environment, which is, of course, the open space of the oral cavity. 
So biofilm formation as conducted by Ascordanii involves proteins called adhesins. It also needs ABC transporters, those are ATP binding cassette transporters, and a whole host of enzymes which carry out glycosylation. Okay. All of those factors, the signaling, the ABC transporters, the glycosyltransferases, those are all very important protein factors for maintaining the biofilm in what can be a very competitive and very easily alterable microenvironment within the oral cavity because it's open to the environment. Now, there was an enzyme that was discovered that was required for disulfide bond formation. We brought it up last time. Remember, that's two cysteine residues making a disulfide in a protein. Now, that enzyme is coded by a, pro, uh, by a gene called SDBA. And it, as I also mentioned to you, it's absolutely essential for biofilm formation. So this SDBA, right, is a thiol disulfide oxidoreductase, and it catalyzes disulfide bond formation in all of the extracytoplasmic proteins. And all of those disulfide bonds are essential for the folding and stability of those proteins. So when you get a mutant in the SDBA locus, what you find, of course, first off, if it's the kind of mutant that loses its functional activity, you no longer make the disulfide bonds. And when this happens, you get a stress signal that triggers the activation of the two component signaling system. Remember I told you that can be induced by exogenous environmental cues is the very first lecture. Now, when that happens, and the, the signaling system I'm talking about, of course, is the CIARH. That's usually in a response to the accumulation of the misfolded proteins. And that's why I brought up the UPR the very first time before. So now I'm just giving you the deeper molecularity of the discussion. So CIAH, that histidine kinase, remember it's on the membrane and activates the response regulator known as CIAR by transphosphorylation onto that aspartic acid. And then that drives the expression ultimately at the level of transcription of multiple and translation of multiple proteins, including one called the DEGP, which is uh, actually a product of the HTRA gene. And that's actually, that is a quality control protease that degrades all the otherwise inappropriately folded because they're not glycosylated correctly, aberrant proteins at the cell surface. So inactivation of the SDBA, that disulfide oxidoreductase, generates what you can well imagine to be a pleiotropic phenotype. So the mutants are, of course, as we said last time, deficient in genetic competence, but also in bacteriosin production. And because of that, they can't take up DNA and they can't produce extracellular DNA either. So there's no eDNA production. Also, this modification, this mutation in the SBDA will also yield to autolysis. However, 
the complete inactivation of the STBA locus. Remember, that's the thiol disulfide oxidoreductase, the catalyzed disulfide bond formation in extracytoplasmic proteins. When you inactivate that enzyme, you actually enhance biofilm formation. So that means some of the phenotypes function as a direct result of that inactivation. For example, there's a major autolysin called the ATTS. That's a protein, right? And it's the natural substrate for the SDBA. And therefore, it's inactive when you get the delta SDBA mutant. See how that phenotype plays out very linearly in your understanding of how the enzyme functions. And I told you other phenotypes include the loss of bacteriosin production and this stress response by the CIARH, all of which ultimately can be associated by the regulation of the COMDE quorum sensing system, which involves basically an accounting of bacterial population, right, or titer. So COMD is activated when it senses an accumulation of secreted competence-stimulated peptide, the CSP. And when it gets activated, it phosphorylates the response factor COME. So this is COMD now, phosphorylating COME. And ultimately what happens is that you eliminate the CSP production. No more transcription translation. That effectively collapses the COMDE pathway and also bacteriocidin production. So the pleiotropic phenotype of that delta SDBA mutant involves multiple biochemical mechanisms, motifs, and modalities. and But yet they're all related to disulfide bond formation. So the biochemistry is straightforward, but then all the pleiotropic biochemical phenomena that are sequelae to either the normal disulfide bond formation or the lack thereof because of mutations or removal of that of that gene can become quite can, can become florid and myriad in their physiological phenotype so the basis for enhanced biofilm production by that delta sdba mutant is not really well described but it obviously has something to do with that competence stimulating peptide and probably the CIRH2 component signaling system at the level of nation transcription, right? which is a larger story than I really want to get into today about this whole avirulence package that we're involved in. Remember, we're, we're still discussing avirulence. This is the whole reason we're discussing it. Now, a word on bacteriosins. These are actually antibacterial peptides that are synthesized via the bacterial ribosome. And typically you find them in lactic acid bacteria and most commonly produced. That's where they were first discovered. What they do in terms of their function is they play a role in the prevention of many diseases, actually. What diseases? Well, major ones, pro-inflammatory diseases, cancers, respiratory tract infections, Systemic infections, such as in the liver, the kidney, the gut, 
And that includes intestinal disorders, some of which you may consider, like ulcerative colitis, and overall bacterial infection, all associated with the production of bacteriosins because they're antimicrobial, right? And the appropriate synthesis of these glycoproteins and secretion, production and secretion of these bacteriosins actually helps maintain the biofilm which is the gut microflora of a healthy mammalian system, okay? So as bacteriosins, what they can do is they can generate pores and that will then generate an efflux of ions and ATP and other small molecules, amino acids, and that can result directly in cell death of potentially pathogenic bacteria. So you see how these bacteriosins can be transactivating a virulence factors associated with the biofilm against protopathogenic bacteria also linked into the biofilm, right? So for example, the, uh, the ascordonii generating these bacteriosins, which remember was being corrupted because of the mutation and the disulfide oxidoreductase, that also involved the corruption of bacteriosin production. And those bacteriosins actually normally control S-mutans by killing off the S-mutans because of their location in the biofilm. So that's one way that these can be treated as a virulence factors, but acting in a transbacterial mechanism, Okay. So you see how broadly I'm stroke, the strokes I'm making with the paintbrush of the discussion of avirulence, I want you to now get into full floored state, right? Because this is authentic biochemistry. And this is Dr. Dan Guerra saying bye for now.